Podcastle, episode 384, for October 6, 2015, the Vintage Podcastle Flash Fiction Extravaganza, rated PG-13. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Rachel K. Jones, your co-editor and host. Today's episode ties my brain into knots because what you're about to hear is the real-world culmination of a fantasy of mine from way back when I was a PodCastle fan and listener. You see, I love this podcast. I love the people who run it now, and I love the people who made it what it is. But what happens to those who mosey off to their retirement home for gently used PodCastle editors? As it turns out, they don't stay put for very long. Like a great story that refuses to call it quits after the first volume, they throw themselves into the raging tempest of fiction and return to its shore, tired but proud with their own stories to tell. As it turns out, each of PodCastle's past editors are also outstanding authors in their own right. As a group, they've left their mark in most major zines, been nominated for and won most major awards, released novels and anthologies, and in between all these things, they've managed to tend to their families and friends, and might have even slept for an hour or two, if the rumors can be believed. One thing we've never done on PodCastle, though, is bring their work together in one episode, stage a fictional audio reunion of pure awesome, showcasing what they've done since sallying forth from the Flying Castle. So when Graham and I took the reins... We approach PodCastle's three former editors-in-chief, Rachel Swirsky, Anna Schwind, and Dave Thompson, as well as PodCastle's former associate editors, Anne Leckie and LaShawn Wanick, and ask them each to contribute a flash piece for this reunion. This is the part where I throw back my head and cackle! <laughs> my evil plan! It worked! PodCastle is very proud to present Vintage PodCastle, Five fantasy stories by your former editors, united once more to bring you storytelling magic. Leading the parade, we have The Island Wakes by D.K. Thompson. This one's a PodCastle original. D.K. Thompson is the super-secret pseudonym of Dave Thompson, California King, Easter Werewolf, Hidden Saint, and PodCastle's host and co-editor for five years, from 2010 to just this past April. Contrary to popular belief, the K in D.K. Thompson doesn't actually stand for anything. It is, in fact, a linguistic scar left over from Dave's encounter with a ravenous name-eating vocabulary in an enchanted library many years back. Since heading out to Editor Pasture, he's run a successful Kickstarter to fund a collection of his short fiction, and Welcome Back, which will be out later this year. He also has brand new fiction coming out at Apex Magazine and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Check out his blog, spiritualnoir.net, or follow him on Twitter at Kryler, K-R-Y-L-Y-R. Your narrator is Julie Hoverson. Julie is no stranger to PodCastle. You last heard her talents on PodCastle 216, Insect Joy. You can find more of her work on the excellent 19 Nocturne Boulevard podcast, which we'll link in the show notes. Follow her on Twitter at 19 Nocturne. About this story, Dave says he wrote it as a love letter to PodCastle. 
So let's sip pina coladas while we watch the stars come out, secure our surfboard leashes, and enjoy the story. The Island Wakes by D.K. Thompson Here's the thing about the island's hotel. There's no bill when you check out. Mel Summers has been working behind the front desk for the past five months, and she's still not exactly sure how it all works. Some of upper management is human, and some of upper management has fish scales or shark teeth or a membrane that slicks over their eyes. Nice people, but when Mel asks them questions about how the hotel gets by, all she ever receives is some hand-waving about pirate treasure, kraken fossils, and enchantment copyrights. Separately, never all together. Mel doesn't ask if it has anything to do with the ghosts. What she knows for sure is that every morning, guests check out. Sometimes they give her crumpled bills or ask her to charge a certain amount to their cards, but it isn't required. The hotel usually splits these payments between the employees for them to spend at shops or restaurants that fade in and out on the island. Room and board is covered with the job. More often, the guests just come to the desk and drop off their keys with a wave. How is your stay? Mel asks. The response is generally enthusiastic. It's a big island, and, like the tide, it's always shifting. Not everyone sees the ghosts or the monsters underground. The island can't be mapped that easily. Everyone has their own experiences. They might glimpse mysterious serpentine creatures breaking the ocean's surface, or wrap flannel blankets around their shoulders and listen to the sirens' songs or get captured by barnacle-crusted driftwood pirates, or explore the ancient underground temples. Some visitors have seen dinosaurs on the other side of the volcano, though Mel never has, despite having looked a few times. If the explorers are somehow let down, well, there are plenty of other mysteries for them to discover the next day. Submarine ruins washed ashore. Haunted laboratories sealed underwater. Tide pools, where human-like creatures sunbathe and laze, their wide circular mouths showing baleen speckled with krill. Rock eggs the size of small whales, with long cracks spreading across the spotted shells. And yet, those experiences won't be quite the same the next day. Every day, the island changes. When she started working there, Mel stayed up late one night with her co-worker Eddie and his boyfriend Alex. They drank piña coladas and ate papayas with lime squeezed over them and waited as the shore break lapped across the sand and rocks. Then, after midnight, when the stars filled the sky, they watched from the rooftop as the coastlines bent and twisted, like it was stretching after waking. The trees lining the beaches cracked like vertebrae as they toppled or shifted. The ocean yawned as waves broke against the new beaches, rising up out of the tide. It wasn't scary, not to Mel. She still loves going to the rooftop and watching the island transform. Every day a new adventure. Every day filled with new opportunities to escape into. There are some constants, like the hotel. The hotel is permanent. So is the volcano at the island's center, and the temples underground, though the way you get to them isn't always set.
Between the hotel and the shoreline are swimming pools trimmed with volcanic rock, filled with floating bars and waterfalls. Screams and laughter float up from secret passageways carved into the black stone. Children leap into the water, cannonballing, splashing. Mel spends a lot of her break time watching them swim. Around sunrise, Mel throws on a sweatshirt and shorts over a swimsuit. She pedals her bike down the coast in her flip-flops, a surfboard under her arm, or if she wants to go further, gets a ride with Eddie or one of her other co-workers. She looks for the new brakes, for that ride that will leave her feeling she's surfing down the face of the wave long after sunset. Sometimes, she'll look down into the clear water she's surfing and see people swimming beneath her, their tails pumping. After her dawn patrol, Mel's outfit doubles as her uniform, the smell of the ocean's salt still on her skin. The only addition to her outfit is an old surfboard leash she cut off with a knife with Melville sharpied on it. Eddie's is made out of seashells. Alex, who works at the bar, is rough, stringy coconut fragments. When the guests check out, they often express regret at having to leave. Mel nods and says she understands. She asks them, why do you have to leave? Usually, they reply with work or school or family. A lover left behind, a parent losing their battle with cancer. Sometimes, that's all there is to it. They smile and say they want to come back, and Mel tells them they're always welcome. But other times, after searching for a reason, they pause. They look at Mel and admit, I don't know. Those are the people that make Mel want to keep asking. Sometimes they stay. Sometimes they come back. Over a year ago, Mel's kid brother was killed by a drunk driver. Six months after the funeral, Mel came to the island with her boyfriend. She's forgotten his name now. She wonders if it's something else the island has changed. Somehow, she remembers he tasted like citrus, but she can't remember his name. Whatever his name was, he'd heard about it from a friend and booked the ride there. That part, of course, isn't free. The last day of their vacation, they went to the underground temple. They were separated in the darkness and saw monsters in the caves. Mel's was ever-shifting with eyes of fire and polished scales the color of lava. While the monster purred, rattling the walls so pebbles trickled down the sides, Mel stared at its scales and saw her life reflected in them. She saw herself running tests as a lab technician, stuck in traffic on the way home from work, at church, visiting her brother's grave. Then she thought she saw her brother back when he was alive, back when they were kids, jumping off the diving board to cannonball her. But it might have just been a memory. She never saw her boyfriend's monster. She only saw her boyfriend after she came back up from the temple. The next day, when their week came to an end, Mel told him she was staying and kissed him goodbye. A good kiss. He never said he would come back. She wasn't asking him to. Everyone needs to decide that for themselves. That night, after three drinks and a performance of Ben Harper's Steal My Kisses at the karaoke lounge, she bought a knife and a surfboard and cut off the leash. She went out surfing the next morning. 
Then she applied for a job and started working the same day. Sometimes now, she goes out to one of the swimming pools and sees a kid cannonball, and it looks like her brother. Other times, she's pretty sure the kid is her brother. She smiles whenever she sees him. When he disappears, Mel smiles and stretches, like she's waking up from a particularly good daydream. Sometimes her back cracks a little, and maybe she yawns. Then she goes back to the front desk and checks in the new guests. She offers a welcoming smile, finds a vacant room, and helps them plan the first day of their next adventure. And hi there. It's Graham Dunlop, your other co-editor and host. And I'm telling you, what happens at the resort stays at the resort. And so, apparently, do some of the guests. Now, somehow we've contracted this curse of the Easter werewolf thingy here at Podcastle. So it's not surprising that one of our former editors turned in a piece about, you guessed it, Easter werewolves. For your delectation and delight, we present Sheep Among Easter Werewolves by Anne Leckie. You may have heard of her. She's the author of the Hugo Nebula and Arthur C. Clarke award-winning novel Ancillary Justice, the first novel in the Imperial Rags series. She's also published short stories in Subterranean magazine Strange Horizons and Realms of Fantasy. She's worked as a waitress, a receptionist, a rodman, I don't even know what that is, oh, on a land surveying crew, and as a recording engineer. She lives in St. Louis, Missouri. This story was originally written for Dave Thompson's Kickstarter of stories called And Welcome Back. The narrator for this story is the almost literally bulletproof Sir Alasdair Stewart. You'll be familiar with him as host of Pseudopod, co-host of Escape Pod, and his general all-round podosphere pervasiveness. You can find him online at alasdairstewart.com. But now... Whilst it is true that the correct dates for customs and rituals can be contentious, there's nothing contentious about enjoying the story. Sheep Among Easter Werewolves by Anne Leckie I fear to inform your majesty, said Brother Maximus, that your people's dating of Easter is heretical. The Council of Nicaea ruled centuries ago that it should be celebrated on the Sunday... Did they? asked King Osric, with a mild voice and an expression of perplexity. I suppose I can see why it would be convenient for all of the church to celebrate Easter at the same time. Why, when my mother married my father, they nearly always celebrated Easter on different days. My mother would still be fasting, sometimes for weeks after my royal father had feasted. It could be very inconvenient, especially for the cooks and the priests. Of course, but you know I don't think she ever complained. I was always under the impression she preferred it that way, actually. Our Easter feasts can be a touch uncouth. They stood in the hall, the long tables freshly scoured, the floor swept and fresh rush mats laid down in anticipation of that evening's feast. In fact, said Brother Maximus, it was the chaplain of your late royal mother who informed us of your people's unusual Easter customs, when he returned to Rome after the funeral. 
we were all much surprised. It had been widely believed that quarto deciminianism that is the name, I beg to inform you, Majesty, of your particular heresy, or at least this particular part of it. Quarto deciminianism the celebrating of Easter on the 14th of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, rather than the Sunday after, has been extinct for some centuries. His Holiness was distressed to hear of its revival. He chose me to carry his message to you here. If you are the children of Holy Mother Church, you must acknowledge the proper dating of Easter, among other things. Other things? King Osric laughed. And why does his holiness care? He won't marry into the royal family or ever lock himself into his room, fasting and praying while all the rest of this country celebrates Easter. God has granted us kings as authorities over secular concerns, replied Brother Maximus primly. His holiness rules over spiritual matters, and he has, of course, a great concern for the souls of the faithful. And until recent decades, ours has been a small, isolated kingdom here in the mountains, and you thought us poor and insignificant, or even a myth to frighten children with, eh, brother? I know better than to place any reliance on wild tales, Majesty. Do you now? Well... I'm certain you know, brother, that it was St. Perpetua who brought Christianity and Easter to these mountains 500 years ago. She is still much revered here. She said, when she arrived, that His Holiness the Pope had counselled missionaries to adapt and modify local practices in order to lead the people gently to Christ. I hear, for instance, of pagan temples in Rome itself turned to churches. The saint did nothing less when she established the custom here of celebrating Easter on the first full moon of spring. My ancestors already celebrated the coming of spring with sacrifices to their gods. It would have been a grief, a hardship, for them to give that up, which we certainly would have had to do had we celebrated Easter after the full moon instead of on the day. After all, if there's no full moon, there can be no Easter werewolf. I assure you, brother, it would have been the nearest thing to impossible to ask us to continue to fast possibly weeks longer with the spring moon shining down, and the feast with no werewolf would be a terribly empty one for us. The saint knew that. Brother Maximus suppressed a frown. One begs to inform your majesty that Sister Perpetua is not on the calendar of saints. She was, in fact, expelled by her order. <laughs> Don't say that where the common people can hear you, brother, if you value your life, said King Osric. And, continued the monk, the local custom of the Easter werewolf must cease. I could see how your ancestors' pagan customs and superstitions might seem a foreshadowing of the true faith, the sacrificed lambs in particular, but the blood and the people running through the night, howling as though they've become wolves, and the feasting when you should be fasting. No! It must stop, Majesty, and your people must bring themselves under the guidance of Holy Mother Church in Rome. I'll make you a deal, brother, said King Osric. When the sun goes down on our Easter feast tonight, and the moon rises 
I give you leave to stand up and say these things to all assembled here. If you survive it, I will give you leave to travel the country and do your best to sway the people to your way of dating Easter. I thank you, Majesty. Of course. I think it much more likely it will end with the Easter werewolf tearing out your throat and then running howling across the field after lambs. Brother Maximus said nothing. Hmm, said King Osric. I do love a nice, fresh lamb. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that one. For the record, here at Podcastle, we always celebrate our Easter's on the full moon, just to be safe. Next up, we have Surprises, Not Secrets by Anna Schwind. This one's a Podcastle original. Anna Schwind is the bilingual, globetrotting force of nature who co-edited Podcastle with Dave Thompson from 2010 to 2015. So far, she's been to four continents and did not successfully escape the family curse of teaching despite years of resistance. Her favorite prime number is 23. She also shares with me an editor origin story that began in the slush dungeons of Escape Pod before the castle summoned her to her editor post. It's read to you by Podcastle associate editor Kalita Muhammad Ali. Kalita lives in Houston, Texas with her husband of 25 years and three children. By day, she works as a breast oncology nurse. At all other times, she juggles none too successfully writing, reading, gaming, and gardening. She has self-published one novel entitled An Unproductive Woman, has published a story at Escape Pod, and has a story upcoming in the Alphabet of Embers anthology. Of her alter ego, Kay from the planet Vega, it is rumored that she owns a time machine and knows the secret to long youth. You can catch her posts at her website, www.kalita.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Kalita. So get ready for a glimpse into your future, if you'll pay the price in milk or blood, and enjoy the story. Surprises, Not Secrets by Anna Schwend Don't peek! You're peeking! Josie cracked open one eye. She knew Velamine wanted her to peek because she hadn't been. She was rewarded with a growl, a flash of sparkling brown, and a sharp twist of her upper ear, the one without the barbell. Josie quickly shut her eyes again. Velamine moved around Josie, the fluttery, rustling sound which made her think of insects. She smelled the sharp rosemary tang that accompanied it as it zipped around. Overlaying that, Josie caught the mossy smell of the creek bank and smiled defiantly. Don't go down by the creek, you hear? Her mother had said every day all summer long when they'd moved in. But here she was. She was in no hurry for Velamine's surprise. Here, time stretched itself. She had all the time in the world. When she left, it would snap back to its usual escalated rhythm. Okay, it's ready. Sit up and open your eyes. Josie sat up and opened her eyes. 
Velamine stood on Josie's left knee. Three bubbles hung in the space between them, two small ones and one larger one. Bubbles were not the most remarkable thing Josie had ever seen, and she tried to school her expression to pleasant amusement, but Velamine's eyes met her, and Josie knew she'd failed. Velamine growled again and pinched the skin on the back of Josie's knee. No, look! Josie inhaled sharply and resisted swatting Velamine away like a large, unpleasant bug. Its hands were nimble, but its fingers also ended in these sharp points, and its pinches hurt, and it seemed to know exactly where they'd hurt the most. Velamine let go of Josie and waved the air. The bubbles drifted up in front of Josie's face. The iridescent exterior of the bubbles shifted as Josie watched, sliding along the surface, separating and reforming, resolving into images. In a small one, she saw herself lying back on the black vinyl padded table. Her father was next to her, signed consent form in one hand, gripping her hand with the other, while the piercer hovered above. Are you sure about this? he asked, looking into her eyes. Josie on the bed couldn't speak. She nodded. He told her to hold her head very still and take a deep breath. There was a nip on her ear, not pain, but something like it, and then she felt light and untethered. She rolled her eyes to her father, who was staring at her expectantly, intently. Josie by the creek looked instead to the bandage covering the fresh heart tattoo on her dad's upper arm. Their shared birthday gift. His said she knew her name. She missed him so much. Josie saw Velamine's green-tinged finger reflected on the surface as its sharp nail bust the bubble. Past. This one's now. Velamine gestured toward the larger of the remaining two bubbles floating before them. And that one's the future? Josie gestured toward the small one. Maybe, Velamine smiled. Clever, right? Velamine was clever. Velamine clapped its hands and grinned. Josie thought it not terribly original, to be honest, but she knew the little thing was terribly sensitive so she smiled and said, Oh, yes, very clever, then bent her face close to the large bubble. It was her dad. She had to curl her fingers back into her palms to keep herself from reaching into the bubble. His face was so tired. He was sitting at the kitchen table in her grandmother's house with its old formica table, green like Velamine's skin, with the tiny interlocking boomerangs and black and white drawn all over its surface. There was a tall mug of coffee in front of him. Grandma was pouring him more out of that shiny old coffee pot, shaped a little bit like a rocket ship. Her father was holding his head up with his hands, and Josie knew from the pose he had a hangover. Oh, Dad, Josie said. Her voice sounded like her mom's, all scold and disappointment. She pressed her lips together. She didn't like it when she sounded like Mom. 
When would she get to see him again? He hadn't answered any of Josie's text messages or her phone calls. Was he angry? What was happening? Didn't he miss her or care about her? Josie's throat tightened and a bloom of anger drenched her. She smacked the bubble with the heel of her hand. Comes in threes, latest sugar bead. You have one left. Josie felt a prickling on the heel of her hand where she touched the bubble. Turning her palm up, she saw the contact had burned, leaving the skin reddish and itchy. Don't sulk and look. This one's special and not allowed. Velamine looked over her shoulder guiltily, as if someone should overhear, though there was never anyone else at the bottom of the garden. Now it was her neck that prickled as she leaned forward and peeked into the last small bubble. The surface was swirling darkly. Instead of resolving into a scene, it flashed pictures at her. She glanced up at Velamine, who shrugged. Not as steady, branches and forks. Josie inhaled and focused on the wavery surface of the bubble. Was that... Was she getting into a car with her dad? It was dark, and she could hardly see. But was that Velamine peeking out of her messenger bag? A swirl and there. She was feeding it, a drop of blood from her index finger, and they were at the bottom of the garden, as always. What had happened to the car? There it was, only a different car. Her mother was driving and shouting and angry. I told you not to, was all she could make out, before another swirl, and she was at school, the new school, which started next week. It made her stomach twist to think about it. It was going to be hard, and she didn't want to go. And what if she couldn't find anyone to hang out with? Fucking high school. And there she was again, sitting under this very tree by the creek, and there was a boy. Oh, not too much. Velamine pinched the bubble closed, and Josie squeaked like someone had startled her. Velamine, bring it back. Can't. No energy. So hungry. Feel woozy, actually. Velamine draped itself dramatically against Josie's belly. It lay its fingers over its face and peeked through at her to see if she was buying it. Oh, fine. I brought you some milk. Josie took the bottle with the eyedropper out of her pocket. Beautiful, beautiful human, Velamine crooned, combing its fingers through her hair. Josie sighed, feeling the knot in her belly from the future bubble unwind and unfold itself. Even if there was no one at the new school, she would still have Velamine. V, can you send messages? She asked as Velamine sucked down the eyedropper of milk. Velamine nodded. She smacked her lips. Now you are clever, human youngling. V is very nice and keeps my name secret. Remember, it's our secret. Our family doesn't do secrets. We do surprises, Josie said automatically. 
a phrase that had been hammered into her years ago. But she was pretty sure, now that she said it in front of Velamine, that this wasn't true. If I want you to take a message to my dad, can you do it? Maybe. Bring me the message tomorrow. What about now? No. I am sleepy now and want to nap. Go away, marjoram leaf. I must nap. Josie sighed again. She didn't like to leave the stretched time. Velamine planted a kiss on her temple. Come back tomorrow. And in between have the sorts of dreams that fill your time. We'll settle on a price for your message. Go now. Velamine's rosemary scent sharpened all around Josie like a cloud. She got up and climbed the long slope of the backyard back to the house without thinking about it. It wouldn't be a secret sending a message to Dad. It would be a surprise. She tried to imagine his face when he got her note. Josie sat down at her other grandmother's old desk, now hers, to write it. What had Felamine meant by a price? She knew what it always wanted and always asked for, a few drops of her blood. Instinctively, she felt this was a bad idea, but she didn't know why. She had demurred and stalled before now. But how else could she get in touch with her dad? And it was not a dangerous amount of blood she wanted, just a dropper's full, like the milk. Josie looked down at the lined paper before her. She'd asked Velamine some questions, smart questions, about the blood, and be sure. She wouldn't do anything dangerous or stupid, but getting in touch with her dad was important, and this was the only way. And hello again. What a perfect little bubble of a story that was. But now I want the next bubble. What do you say, Anna? Will we hear more of Josie and V and the price to be? Next, we have the summation of Evil Corp Subsidies HR Meeting Agenda Minutes compiled by Olivia Washington by LaShawn M. Wanak. LaShawn is a former associate editor at Podcastle. Her story, 21 Steps to Enlightenment Minus One, was Podcastle episode 360, and her story, Future Perfect, can be found at Escape Pod, episode 288. It's read to you by the forever fabulous M.K. Hobson, who, she claims, recently decided to follow a time-honoured authorial tradition and become a bitter recluse. She swore off all social media and left her website to go to seed. At the moment, she exists only as a voice on short fiction podcasts and leavens the tedium of her vastly expanded free time with misanthropy, paranoia and weightlifting. Despite what she claims, she does still write, however. Her latest written offering is The Ladies and the Gentlemen, a novella in the Venificas Americana series. It's currently in production by Audible and is also available in Ian paper book format from Amazon. And now consider this. Corporations are only as good as their leader. And if things aren't going right, well, 
maybe it's time to shop around for a new guy. So polish up your resume and enjoy the story. The Summation of Evil Corp Subsidies HR Meeting Agenda Minutes Compiled by Olivia Washington By LaShawn M. Lennock Memo number one, the meeting. Meeting opened with Olivia Washington, me, going over our supreme overleader's plan to change the name of our organization from Evil Core Subsidies to Super Villain Hero Inversion Technologies, effective this Thursday. Ten minutes was spent bemoaning on how this is a bad idea. Not only will it mean ordering new letterhead with a new name for the third time this year, but also because, in the words of Colton Smoker, Risk Management, people are going to take one look at the new name and laugh their heads off. Phineas Flathead, Legal, pointed out that our organization is a laughingstock as it is, and a name change won't help any. Fifteen minutes into the meeting, our Supreme Overleader, Fraser Jeske III, burst into the meeting room, claiming his favorite mug was missing. You know, the Peanuts mug, the one that has Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Lucy, Peppermint Patty, all laughing hysterically against a red backdrop that made them look insane and tortured. Yes, that mug. We needed to stop what we were doing to find it right now. As our supreme overleader was a three-time heavyweight champion boxer before coming to Evil Corp subsidies, everyone scrambled to obey. Forty minutes later, Mug was eventually located beneath the Supreme Overleader's desk. The human resources team reconvened and was finally ready to discuss the next item on the agenda, overthrowing the current Supreme Overleader and installing a new one, preferably someone more sane, but not too sane, in accordance to Article 12 of our bylaws. I, Olivia reminded everyone that this really needs to work because the last time we failed to overthrow our overleader, he made us wear signs around our neck that read, Suck it, losers. Also, he made me memorize the entire contents of the 1919 New English Dictionary, Volume 9, Parts 1 and 2, then recite it out loud to him from memory so he can go to sleep. I really, really, really don't want to go through that again. Colton and Olivia, me, will facilitate the call for resumes and applications. We shall reconvene in a week's time at a secret place so the overleader does not find out what we're doing. Memo number two, candidate approval. Due to the nature of our agenda, our next meeting was held in an abandoned building on Watts Street at 9.52 p.m. Lysandra Green, benefits, couldn't make the meeting because our supreme overleader had pulled her aside earlier in the day to aid him on a secret project involving planting a nuclear device in the center of New Chicago, where the old John Hancock Center used to be. We felt this to be a necessary distraction, so we approved her absence. In total, there were 32 applicants. Olivia, me, had narrowed the candidates down to three supervillains. Olfactory, known for his overpowering smell and not much else. Melvor the Barbarian, cousin of superhero Theseus the All-Powerful and thus nursing a grudge, and my personal favorite, the Mud Skipper Pirate and his Armada of Zeppelin Sharks. See attached applications for reference. Colton Smoker, Risk Management, then distributed a fourth application packet, telling us that this was a last-minute addition but to keep an open mind. The application packet was for the superhero known as the Math Beatnik. 
his modus operandi is to fight crime with the power of mathematics and word problems in the form of beat poetry. We have dealt with him and his ambiguous sidekick, the pink erasure, usually on the wrong end of his subtraction ray. But now it appears that both are applying as a single unit for Supreme Overleader's job. Phineas, legal, recited Section 1 of the Supervillain Policy Manual, which states that all employees of Evil Corp subsidies must be of supervillain origin. Colton said that this only applies to those on the field. Evil Corp employees stationed in headquarters only need to score 30% or above on the evilness aptitude test. The math beatnik and the pink erasure scores combined equal 85%, which is surprisingly high. I suggested an additional interview with them. This could be a ruse by the League of Superheroes, sending the two of them over as spies. Colton and Phineas agreed, then said that since my superpower is having a photographic memory, which only lasts for a month, I am the best person to interview them, as if I don't have enough to do. Memo number three, interview with the math beatnik and the pink erasure. I interviewed the subjects at O'Grady's Bar on Monroe Street. If I'm going to do this, then at least I'll get a decent meal from it. Math Beatnik is male, Caucasian, late 30s, bull haircut similar to 1950s era Beatles, but with more gray hairs and slightly balding. Black t-shirt, black skinny jeans, pot belly, wearing a belt that contains a slide rule, calculator, and a 1960s tape recorder that, when pressed, emits a jazz melody of drums and saxophone from a tinny speaker. The sidekick, Pink Erasure, is, I'm not sure, can't tell if male or female. Venezuelan, long brown hair pulled back into a ponytail held by a pink rubber band. Pink leotard, pink tights, pink cape. Asked if it was all right to smoke. I said this was an evil organization. Breaking rules is mandatory. I administered the questions. Why were they, as superheroes, interested in the supreme overlord position? They explained that there are three tiers in the League of Superheroes. Tier 1 contains the most popular heroes. Tier 2 has the semi-popular heroes. They do a few commercials here and there, but they're still famous enough to be in the paper. Then there's Tier 3. We do the jobs no one else wants, the math beatnik explained. Traffic stops. Handling petty crime. It's a step above police, but we don't get paid the superhero popularity rates, and we get no benefits. Some of us tried to negotiate for higher wages, but the League wouldn't do it. Said that the knowledge of keeping New Chicago safe from evildoers should be compensation enough. Can't tell you how many times I get shot at, stabbed, and then I got to spend my own money on repairs. It's a drag. A real drag. Allow me to scat my sadness. He pressed a button on his tape recorder and was soon lost in his own rhymes. The pink erasure blew smoke and asked me, Tell me something. Do you consider yourself evil? I said, No. If anything, I consider myself chaotic neutral. I just wanted a job that worked well with my superpower. The League of Superheroes didn't feel it was good enough, so here I was. The pink erasure sighed. Wouldn't have mattered even if the League had taken you. Stopping the same heists, arresting the same criminals, giving the same speeches over and over. After a while, you start to wonder if doing good isn't enough. 
and you need a way to shake things up, make people pay attention to you, show them what evil could really look like. I'm beginning to understand who did the actual scoring on the evilness aptitude test. I wrote exception on their applications. Maybe what Evil Core needs is not so much an insane villain, but a jaded superhero. Memo number four. Final interview slash termination of Supreme Overleader. The final interview began with all five candidates being sent to Supreme Overleader's office to serve termination papers while rest of Evil Core employees hid behind their desks. As predicted, our Supreme Overleader was not happy and immediately squashed Olfactory with his bare fists. This was actually a relief, as those of us observing could now remove our gas masks. Melvor the Barbarian was eliminated next, crying that he had a boo-boo on his knee and running out of the office to find his mommy to kiss it and make it better. The biggest disappointment was the Mudskipper Pirate. His armada of Zeppelin sharks had looked promising on paper, but in actuality all they did was float around, snapping their jaws in place. One punch from the Supreme Overleader took them out. The pyrotechnics that followed did cause significant damage. Colton Smoker, risk management, kept moaning as he hunkered under his desk, Oh God, our insurance premiums! No! This left the math beatnik and pink erasure. Their teamwork involved a working knowledge of calculus, string, and some badass moves that, for the sake of time, will not be included in this report. They were successful in delivering the termination papers to the Supreme Overleader, and among the cheers of the entire organization, booted him out of the building. With our Supreme Overleader finally overthrown, the pink erasure then proceeded to attack the math beatnik. This caused a bit of confusion as to when the two applied. They applied as a single unit and were going to share the role. Their battle was fierce but brief and ended with the pink erasure hogtied at the feet of the math beatnik, who stood, arms akimbo, laughing. So, trying to betray me, but I got your number. I had it for a long, long time. I win. Our employees emerged from their desks, clapping politely. I, Olivia, was flipping through the math beatnik's application to sign the line that makes his supreme overleadership official when I said, hey, there's a signature missing. The math beatnik spun around. That's absurd. I filled it out. Every page, every question, every stupid fill in the box. A manic gleam began to shine from his eyes. I signed everything that I possibly could. I pointed to page 372, except here. You typed your name, but you didn't add your zip code to the end, validating it as a digital signature, which makes this whole page and thus your application incomplete. Our rule states that the last candidate who successfully terminates the previous Supreme Overleader and has a completed application becomes the new Supreme Overleader. The only other candidate that meets this criteria is... I flipped through to make sure... The pink erasure. So, all hail our new supreme overleader. There was polite applause. The pink erasure was untied. The math beatnik was led away, but our new supreme overleader stopped him. I should fire you, but not even I am cruel enough to send you back to the League of Superheroes. I'm sticking you in marketing. The math beatnik brightened at that. Well, it beat the counting. 
Memo number five, Aftermath. Met with our new Supreme Overleader, who was going over the organization name change. Our new Supreme Overleader actually liked the new name, providing that Orientating Horizons is added at the beginning. If we're going to have a scatological reference in our acronym, let's use it to our advantage. I requested permission to ask a question. Earlier in the week, I, Olivia, had watched the math beatnik fill out the 500-page application, standard procedure, and, well, he was right. He had signed every line he was supposed to, including the zip code. How did I miss that one signature? I could have sworn that he did sign it correctly. Our new Supreme Overleader sat back from the name reports. You know, it's funny. When I was a superhero, no one really asked me what my superpower was or why I was called Pink Erasure in the first place. The Supreme Overleader gave me a sidelong look. Would be a shame if you found out the hard way. Without batting an eye, I said, no problem. I can conveniently forget the whole matter if I was given a month-long vacation with pay. For the first time, our new Supreme Overleader laughed. Now that's evil. My request was approved. Effective immediately. And welcome back! I hope you enjoyed the story. I have it on good authority that LaShawn actually has that Peanuts mug. The one where everyone's laughing like they're insane and tortured. LaShawn, whenever your reign of terror begins, I'll be proud to be one of your minions. We'll close this episode with an award-winning flash piece, If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, by Rachel Swirsky. It originally appeared in Apex Magazine and was reprinted in a bunch of places, perhaps most notably in the Best American series, specifically Best Non-Required Reading. Rachel Swirsky was the founding editor of Podcastle and is honored to be featured there again, and we're honored to have her back. Since her time as editor, she has won two Nebula Awards, including one for this short story. Her second short story collection, How the World Became Quiet, Post-Human Creation Myths, came out from Subterranean Press in 2013. The title story is available in text on Tor.com and in audio at EscapePod. Rachel also received a Nebula nomination earlier this year for her novella Grand Jeté, a story about robots' immortality, which we'll link in the show notes. If You Were a Dinosaur My Love is narrated by the one and only Tina Connolly. Tina is the author of the Iron Skin trilogy from Tor Books and the Seriously Wicked series from Tor Teen. Iron Skin, her first fantasy novel, was a Nebula finalist. Her short stories have appeared in Lightspeed, Tor.com, Strange Horizons, Beneath Lisa Skies, and many more. Her narrations have appeared in audiobooks and podcasts including Podcastle, Pseudopod, Beneath Cease of Skies, and her Parsec-winning flash fiction podcast, Toasted Cake. She lives with her family in Portland, Oregon, and her website is tinaconnolly.com. So, get ready to throw some rice. You can throw that at a dinosaur's wedding. And enjoy the story! If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love By Rachel Sorsky If you were a dinosaur, my love, then you would be a T-Rex. You'd be a small one, only five foot ten inches, the same height as human you, 
you'd be fragile boned, and you'd walk with as delicate and polite a gait as you could manage on massive talons. Your eyes would gaze gently from beneath your bony brow ridge. If you were a T-Rex, then I would become a zookeeper so that I could spend all my time with you. I'd bring you raw chickens and live goats. I'd watch the gore shining on your teeth. I'd make my bed on the floor of your cage in the moist dirt cushioned by leaves. When you couldn't sleep, I'd sing you lullabies. If I sang you lullabies, I'd soon notice how quickly you picked up music. You'd harmonize with me, your rough, vibrating voice a strange counterpoint to mine. When you thought I was asleep, you'd cry unrequited love songs into the night. If you sang unrequited love songs, I'd take you on tour. We'd go to Broadway. You'd stand on stage, talons digging into the floorboards. Audiences would weep at the melancholy beauty of your singing. If audiences wept at the melancholy beauty of your singing, they'd rally to fund new research into reviving extinct species. Money would flood into scientific institutions. Biologists would reverse-engineer chickens until they could discover how to give them jaws with teeth. Paleontologists would mine ancient fossils for traces of collagen. Geneticists would figure out how to build a dinosaur from nothing by discovering exactly what DNA sequences code everything about a creature, from the size of its pupils to what enables a brain to contemplate a sunset. They'd work until they'd built you a mate. If they built you a mate, I'd stand as the best woman at your wedding. I'd watch awkwardly in green chiffon that made me look sallow as I listened to your vows. I'd be jealous, of course, and also sad because I want to marry you. Still, I'd know that it was for the best that you marry another creature like yourself, one that shares your body and bone and genetic template. I'd stare at the two of you standing together by the altar, and I'd love you even more than I do now. My soul would feel light, because I'd know that you and I had made something new in the world, and at the same time revived something very old. I would be borrowed, too, because I'd be borrowing your happiness. All I'd need would be something blue. If all I needed was something blue, I'd run across the church, heels clicking on the marble until I reached a vase by the front pew. I'd pull out a hydrangea, the shade of the sky, and press it against my heart, and my heart would beat like a flower. I'd bloom. My happiness would become petals. Green chiffon would turn into leaves. My legs would be pale stems, my hair delicate pistils. From my throat, bees would drink exotic nectars. I would astonish everyone assembled the biologists, and the paleontologists, and the geneticists, the reporters, and the rubberneckers, and the music aficionados, all those people who, deceived by the helix and fossil trappings of cloned dinosaurs, believed that they lived in a science-fictional world.
when really they lived in a world of magic where anything was possible. If we lived in a world of magic where anything was possible, then you would be a dinosaur, my love. You'd be a creature of courage and strength, but also gentleness. Your claws and fangs would intimidate your foes effortlessly. Whereas you, fragile, lovely human you, must rely on wits and charm. A T-Rex, even a small one, would never have to stand against five blustering men soaked in gin and malice. A T-Rex would bear its fangs and they would cower. They'd hide beneath the tables instead of knocking them over. They'd grasp each other for comfort instead of seizing the pool cues with which they beat you, calling you a fag, a towelhead, a she-male, a sissy, a spick, every epithet they could think of, regardless of whether it had anything to do with you or not, shouting and shouting as you slid to the floor in the slick of your own blood. If you were a dinosaur, my love, I teach you the sense of those men. I'd lead you to them quietly. Oh, so quietly. Still they would see you. They'd run. Your nostrils would flare as you inhaled the night, and then, with the suddenness of a predator, you'd strike. I'd watch as you decanted their lives, the flood of red the spill of glistening coiled things, and I'd laugh, laugh, laugh. If I laughed, 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 I'd eventually feel guilty. I'd promise never to do something like that again. I'd avert my eyes from the newspapers when they showed photographs of the men's tearful widows and fatherless children, just as they must avert their eyes from the newspapers that show my face. How reporters adore my face, the face of the paleontologist's fiance with her half-planned wedding, bouquets of hydrangeas already ordered, green chiffon bridesmaid dresses already picked out, the paleontologist's fiance who waits by the bedside of a man who will probably never wake. If you were a dinosaur, my love, then nothing could break you. And if nothing could break you, then nothing could break me. I would bloom into the most beautiful flower. I would stretch joyfully toward the sun. I'd trust in your teeth and talons to keep you, me, us, safe now and forever from the scratch of chalk on pool cues and the scuff of the nurse's shoes in the hospital corridor and the stuttering of my broken heart. Welcome back. There's really nothing I can say about that story. It speaks eloquently for itself. Let's move on to feedback, which is for episode 374, Poet Scholars of the Necropolis, by M.K. Hutchins. It was read by Julia Rios. Comments on this one were very warm indeed. Just about everyone who commented liked it a lot. Head in the Clouds said, I really enjoyed this story as well. 
When Roixa chose to use her granddaughter's poem, I nearly cried. As she had said, just because it wasn't written beautifully didn't mean that there was no beauty in her words. Epilonius said, I loved this story. I saved it in my podcatcher and have listened to it about once or twice a day to keep me sane as I prepare to throw a mini milestone party and vacillate between stress and everyone who's coming loves you, calm down. I enjoyed the love and comfort between two old souls and how they navigated a world they appreciated despite its sillier elements. And Anthony said, After feasting on this story, I find myself yearning for more poetry in my life and not the same old poets forced on us in high school. I'd love some new uplifting modern poetry. Any ideas? And, of course, suggestions followed, and you can see all of those over at forum.escapeartists.net. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, including Mr Audio himself, Peter Wood, thanks for stopping by and sharing with us in listening to the stories. We'll be back next week with another. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. Go to their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de Podcastle relies on you to pay our costs, so if you like what we're doing, please go to podcastle.org, find the Support Us section down the right-hand side, and make a donation. And if you can't donate, we completely understand. Tell others about us. Write on your blog, mention us on Facebook, give us a tweet on Twitter, leave us a five-star review in iTunes. See you next week. Our closing quote comes from Rudyard Kipling, who said, If history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. <laughs>